Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Seacoast. My name is Ryan, one of the pastors here at the church, and we're glad to be here with you this morning. If this is your first time with us or you're with us every week, it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you, especially during this time of the year that kind of is more festive and it's, it's fun to be together. Um, I want to invite you, uh, yeah, before we do that too, I also want to just thank the worship team for everything you guys do for us throughout the year, so thanks for leading us, and, and of course, we, they would not be possible without the people sitting in the back, the most important people, Dave and Apple with us today, and the tech team, thank you guys. They don't often get appreciated because they hide back there, and then when they come up here, they're wearing black, so we can't see them, but they're, uh, I don't know why tech people always wear black, but um, yeah, they do a great job. We love having them, so thank you guys. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 25 and following, and and, uh, so that's where we'll be today, so I invite you to start finding your way there, and uh, join me as we begin with prayer. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, just everything you do for us. We thank you that you are so good to us. And we pray now that, Lord, these words would be your words. And uh, God, we know that you are present in this place. And I pray that we would be aware of your presence. And I pray that this would be all about you. And as we celebrate the season of Advent and and consider your coming and, and prepare our hearts to remember that day, Lord, would you bring hope to us and remind us the joy that's found because of Christmas. So we thank you again for this time. I give it to you in your name. Amen. His day started off like many other days before. As he woke in the early morning, he took time to pray. He took time to meditate on scriptures as he did every day. And as he stepped out of his house, he walked along the narrow cobblestone streets of ancient Jerusalem. The familiar sights and smells and sounds filled his senses. The sounds of shopkeepers who started off their day and were haggling over prices and advertising their business. The smell of spices and fresh baked goods filled the air. As he walked down those cobblestone streets, he the bright colors of the umbrellas and the clothes that were draped. And each shop along the way reminded him of how much he loved his city, how much he loved the years he spent living there. And he thought, God, this is such a great place. How is it that our people seem to be so far from you? How is it that we seem to have lost our way? He continued to walk along the streets that morning and he passed by a building called Antonio's Fortress. It was built to house the Roman soldiers and it was garrisons of Romans were stationed there as a constant reminder that they were not free. That freedom wasn't in their midst once again. And he remembered the stories of his fathers and grandfathers as they told of their battle and their, their fight against, uh, against the Greek Empire and their hope for something new, but now they were under the Romans. He recalled their history of being under the oppression before that of the Persians. And before that, they were in captivity under the Babylonians. With 600 years, their nation had not been free. 600 years. They suffered under foreign powers. And he thought, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. 
He continued to walk that morning and he walked past the fortress onto the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Here he saw this amazing structure that first was built a thousand years prior by King Solomon. It was destroyed and rebuilt and now under their new king, Herod, the one who liked to call himself the Great One. This temple area became one of the wonders of the ancient world. This grand structure with stones that are hard to imagine anyone could ever move. As Simeon walked along that temple mount and saw the temple, he thought to himself that day, God, has it become more about this temple and the grandeur of it and less about the God for whom that temple should represent? Have we lost our way? As he walked along that temple mount in the morning sun, provided a rose-colored glow along the Jerusalem stones. He was reminded of its beauty and heartbroken that they were wandering and lost. As he walked along there towards the courts, the the busy activities all around were as they were every day. He could hear the sounds of sheep and goats, the fluttering of the doves that were being prepared for sacrifice. A sacrifice that had to be made day after day for temporary covering of the sins of the people. Again, he was reminded that these things are not how it should be. Somewhere along the line, the people have lost, we've lost our way. And as he approached the building of the temple, he even thought of the priesthood and thought, even here, God, are we getting this right? See, half the priests were arranged in a group called the Sanhedrin and they were more concerned about politics and aligning themselves with Rome than they were about worshiping the God of all of creation. The other group of priests were so worried about being secluded that they they made religion the more important thing. Following rules and making rules to get around the rules became their faith. Again, forgetting the value of worshiping their God. Simeon thought through the prophets and the promises given to the people that said it will not be like this forever. There will be a day when the Lord will return. Countless times throughout their scriptures it was reminded that the day of the Lord is coming. God said, I will come. I will come as the anointed one, the Messiah appointed for my people. And I will change everything. The prophets promise that they can, through the people of Israel, that they can have reason for hope because God will appear. Because God will make things right. There was hope for salvation from their sins that one day these sacrifices would no longer be needed because the Messiah would come and through His wounds they would be healed and face forgiveness once and for all. They were told in Jeremiah that the days of the Lord will come and there will be a king on his throne who will rule the people rightly. No longer will they have to give in to, to the ways of the world, but they will have their true king, the God of Israel, to lead them. There would be comfort for the people. Simeon grabbed on to these promises and longed for the day when the Messiah would appear. He longed for that moment to say, God, will you show up and change the way it is now? He had hope that God would not forget His promises. But sometimes He had to admit 
as his bones aged, as each day became more difficult. He wondered, God, will I ever see that day? Even though for Simeon, he believed there was a time when he had a dream or some sort of vision that God said, Simeon, you've been righteous. You've been devout your whole life. I promise to you that you will not die before you've seen the Messiah, God's anointed one. The day is coming for you. And Simeon wanted to believe that promise, but sometimes wondered if it would come true. But he wondered this day, could things be different? You see, because something was a little different in recent months. Just three months ago, one of the priests there in Jerusalem had a child. And that priest named that child John. Later we learned that the name was John the Baptist he came to be known as. And when he had this child, he said there was a vision from God that said this child will come in the spirit of Elijah. In other words, he's going to pave the way for the Messiah. And this priest, Zachariah, said he believed that the Messiah was coming. That there's something miraculous happening in Jerusalem. Just eight days prior, Simeon heard the story. He heard it from the shepherds who were tending the sheep out in Bethlehem. The very fields where the sheep were tended, those same sheep that were used for sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, those shepherds said one night an angel appeared to him. Now if it was just one shepherd, Simeon would think they're a little crazy, but all of them said they saw it. The angels appeared and sang and proclaimed that today unto you a child is born. A Savior is given. Because this day in the city of Bethlehem, the Messiah, God's anointed one, has been born. Go, see for yourselves. And the rumor has it that the shepherds heard this, so they went to see, and they saw a baby in a manger. And they swore that what they heard was true. The Messiah is here in the form of a baby. So Simeon had that in his mind and thought, maybe today, Maybe all of this makes sense. So as he walked across the Temple Mount that day, and he looked in the outer courts near the court of women, and he saw a young couple holding what looked to be a newborn baby. Everything inside him came alive as he thought, God, could it be? I don't know why, but there's something about this couple, and Simeon walked straight towards them. This couple was there to consecrate their child who was just born eight days earlier. They were following all the rules. They were devout followers of Judaism and said, we now come to dedicate our child in the temple. And Simeon saw the child and something inside him came alive. And he knew. He knew. I don't know how he knew, but he knew that the child before him was God in flesh. He looked down at the child and asked to take him in his arms and he took the child in his arms. He looked down at this child, just eight days old. An eight-year-old, an eight-day-old child, they don't do much. Just kind of sit there. And he held this child in his arms and as he gazed on the eyes of this child, he looked and he knew at this point, these are the eyes that are going to look upon the world and bring hope once and for all. These are the eyes of a child who's going to grow up and set the people of Israel free from their bondage of sin. And not only to Israel, but he will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the entire world as proclaimed in Isaiah 42. 
as he held this child, he said, truly, this child will be a light to all the nations. He looked at his little hands, his little eight-day-old hands, and thought, could these hands be the hands of God in flesh? Could these hands be the hands that will stretch out for his people and provide hope and peace and comfort and forgiveness as prophesied by the prophets? And will those hands stretch not just to his own people, but to the ends of the earth to bring a hope that has not been found in any other person, any other government, any other movement of man ever? Could these hands be the hands? And as Simeon held the little baby Yeshua, whose name means salvation, he held him in his arms and prayed a blessing over him. He said, this baby is the one who's appointed as a sign to the people. And, and Simeon was referring to Isaiah chapter 7 when it says there'll be a sign that will be given to you. And the sign will be a miraculous sign that you can't explain. A virgin woman will be with child. There's only one way that can happen. It's a miracle. And you will name that child, as it says in the prophet Isaiah, Immanuel, or God with us, Emmanuel. There's something different about that child. And his child held Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus in his arms. He prayed the prayer, the blessing. He said, this child will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He'll be a comfort to his people of Israel. This child is bringing hope to the world. And the scriptures actually tell us, the writer Luke, of the book of Luke, when he wrote this, he said, Mary and Joseph, when they heard this, that they marveled, and he used a word instead of just marveled, it said that they were knocked off their feet when they heard what was said about Jesus. Because they knew something was different about their child. And he handed the baby back and looked at his mother and said, this child is unlike any other. The Messiah of God. And this child is a sign for many but he's going to be a dividing point. For those on whom his favor rests, they will rise and those who reject him will fall because this child demands a response. It's God in the flesh. God with us. See, this story we read in Luke chapter 2 is a story of the very first Christmas. The story of the birth of the Savior Jesus and some of the surrounding events. It's a story of a very righteous and devout follower who was longing and hoping for something to change. He loved his people. He loved the nation of Israel. He longed to see them experience all the blessings that God had promised to them. He knew that they were selected by God and chosen to be blessed so the whole earth may know who the Creator God is. So he longed for them to experience that hope. So this first Christmas was really for Simeon about hope fulfilled. It was something that he'd been longing for year after year after year. And this Christmas, he saw that hope fulfilled. As today, as we study the story and we study the surrounding events of Advent, Advent is a time where we think about the coming of Jesus, we want to talk about what it means to have hope. 
how in that very first Christmas, how Jesus, the Messiah, God with us in flesh, brought hope to the people, brought hope to Simeon, that same hope is here for us today. And it's hope that God will fulfill His promises. It's hope that what God says is true is true. And hope is one of the most powerful things in the world. Webster's Dictionary defines hope this way. It says, Hope is a belief in the positive outcome related to events and circumstances in one's own life. So hope is belief that there will be a positive outcome. Simeon believed that when the Messiah comes, that there would be a positive outcome to God with us. Throughout history, hope has its place in humanity. Famous uh, psychologist Viktor Frankl developed this theory of hope and saying when we can find meaning in life through life circumstances, that's where hope is found and that's one of the most transformative emotions you can have. Viktor Frankl is known for developing uh, different methods of therapy that have finding meaning in hard times, for finding hope. The thing about Viktor Frankl is he had to test his own theories when he and his entire family were thrown and taken into the death camps under Nazi Germany. He lost everyone except for his sister. He was known even through that time to search for meaning and find hope in the situation. Afterwards, he came out and was living proof of the power of hope. Hope is a powerful thing. Lack of hope is powerful too. A practical example for us when we think about hope is we're here in San Diego and so a little surfing story for you. I didn't grow up in Southern California. I kind of grew up in the mountains so I have no problem with snow. Uh, There's never a mountain too steep for me or I can never go too fast. But surfing was a new thing for me. But I've learned to love surfing. The thing I love most of all is it's a lot cheaper than skiing. So that's one thing. But when we surf, there's, there's some days when, like this last weekend where the waves get pretty big. And some of the days when the waves are big, there's, there's hope in action for those who like to go out in the water. See, sometimes when you're out there and you're surfing, you can have these outside sets or these waves that really peak up and are really big. And they, when we say outside, they're breaking kind of outside, kind of further out. And one of the things on the really big days is sometimes you're there and you maybe have a rogue wave or you have a really big set that comes through. Sometimes we call them wash-out waves because when they break, they wash everyone out a little bit. And when those waves, you see them forming and you know they start peaking up, when you're out there, you have to make a decision. There's a couple decisions. One is you can kind of wait where you are and hope it breaks and then you duck under it when the whitewater gets to you. It's a risky proposition. The other one is you start charging straight at it and with the hope that you get there before it breaks and you can dive under and get, get under it and you'll be okay. Now, anyone who surfs knows that there are, we all have the moments when you decide to paddle towards it and you're paddling and you have that moment where the wave peaks up and you know you have chosen poorly. <laughs> that it peaks up and there's nothing you can really do but wait for that wave You dive down as deep as you can, and no matter what you believe, you say a prayer. (laughs) I've heard very ungodly people pray out there. (laughs) Oh Lord, help me out of this one. (laughs) And so the wave peaks up and you dive down. And you have a moment where you think, did I make it through or not? 
But inevitably, there's times when when you dive down, then you feel the wave crash, and sometimes you have this sensation that you become one with the wave, meaning you go up and you go over with it. Those of you who surf, you're there with me, right? You know the moment. And when you get tossed and you fall down, the natural response is to kick and scream and make your way to the top. But that's not what you're supposed to do. At that moment, the best thing to do is first hold your breath. <laughs> and then what? What should you do? Relax. What's that? Pray? This one? <laughs> yeah. yeah, relax. Relax. Wait for the wave to get done with you. <laughs> and in theory, you'll come back up. <laughs> now, those of you who hate the ocean, you hate the ocean because of what I just shared. <laughs> that the best thing to do is take your beating and relax. It's the safest thing to do. Cover your head and just relax. You'll come up. Now, the reason you can do that is because we know that most of the time, people come up. Now, let's think of a scenario this way. What if half the time they didn't when that happened? The next time you're surfing and you know that 50, it's a 50-50 chance you're going to pop up, what happens when the wave tosses you? Your hope's not very strong at that point. You're not sure. And the only thing you can do is to take matters into your own hands. And I guarantee you, relaxing is not going to be very easy at that point. It's hard enough already. But see, but because we have hope, we know that there is a positive outcome is coming. Even in the midst of this turmoil, you can actually wait the moment out and be okay. Hope in our lives works very similar. When we can trust in the promises of God and trust that He is who He says He is and we trust that it's not just my life but there's been thousands of years of people who are following the God of Israel, following Jesus Christ and seeing that His promises have come true year after year, time after time, it gives us hope. We have a reasonable expectation that just like coming out of a wave, that God will walk with us through whatever we're going through. And that's the power of hope. So this morning what we're going to do is just look at a handful of promises of God that are given to Christians. And the idea is followers of Jesus should be the very embodiment of hope. Through our lives and the way we live, the world should see what it looks like to hope in something else. To believe that there will be a positive outcome no matter what the circumstances we go through. That's what Christmas, the very first Christmas, reminded us. So we're going to look at a few of the promises of God here. And it's a reminder that in Acts 26, uh, the Apostle Paul was on trial for his faith. And he said, I'm on trial today because of my hope in the promises of God. Because I dare to believe that what God says is true is true. So today let's look at a few of those promises and what we can hope in today. So I have a few of them up here for you. The first promise we can believe in and find hope for Christians is we, can, we have hope in the promise of God that we can be forgiven, that there is forgiveness. Just as Simeon held the baby Jesus in his hands and said, you are the light of the world, you're the comfort for your people, Israel, and the light to all the people of the world, there's forgiveness that's available to everyone. It's a promise we can believe in. It's a promise that's hard to grasp onto Many of us might say, yeah, I know God will forgive me, but there are times when we feel, oh, how about that one? Will you forgive that one, God? Or maybe you have no problem God will forgive you, but maybe you struggle believing that God will forgive someone else. But we believe the promise of God that no one is outside of the possibility of forgiveness. 
In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all of our own unrighteousness. His promise to us is that He will be faithful to us and forgiveness is available. We can have hope even in the most sinful times of our lives or others that God's grace can break through even that. Another promise is this, a promise of rest. Now I know when you hear rest and it's Christmas season, that sounds fantastic to a lot of us, doesn't it? Yesterday, I I took my middle son and I and we went, we did a little bit of Christmas shopping. And this was weird for me because it was December 12th, which is about 12 days earlier than I normally get started. So, and I couldn't believe that a lot of people actually go Christmas shopping this early. It was crowded everywhere. Everywhere I went, there was people. And I kept looking at my son like, I can't believe there's so many people. And he's like, Dad, it's Christmas time. And it's Saturday. I was like, I know, but normally at 11 p.m. on the 24th, it's not this busy. So I was surprised. But I kept thinking I had that. And then from there, I had to go to a coach's meeting in baseball. And then we had a neighborhood Christmas party. And man, rest sounded good. It sounded good. But that's not the rest we're talking about. It's even a more important rest. It's a rest for our souls. A rest where God says, spiritually, you can find rest. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. My, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, When you follow me, you're not going to feel the weight and the burden of endless lists of religion piled on. None of that matters. Follow me and I take that burden away. Find rest in following me. All the the regulations that you put on yourself, all of your work to try to make yourself worthy, all of your efforts to try to be up here so God approves you, all of that doesn't matter. Jesus says what matters is rest in me you will find rest for your soul. It's a promise of God. The, other this, there's a, the next promise is this. There's a promise that God loves us. Now that sounds pretty cliche, but let's look at it a little more. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, it says this. Paul is writing and he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor things present or things to come, nor any power, nor height, nor death, or any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for his people, his love for you and for me, is a promise that can't be shaken. You can walk through life with hope, expecting that there's a positive outcome, knowing that God loves you desperately and passionately. And nothing can separate you from that love, not even your own stupidity. can't separate you from the love of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 33, verse 22, it says this, God, your loving kindness is upon us, therefore we can hope in you. Because your love is so great, we find hope, God. The author Donald Miller wrote this when he talked about if we could really grasp the hope that comes through love, this is the result. It's kind of a long quote, so I have it on the screen for you. Donald Miller writes, Imagine how a man's life would be if he trusted that he was loved by God. How could he interact with the, how he could interact with the poor and not show, par, not show partiality? He could love his wife easily and not expect her to redeem him. He'd be slow to anger because redemption was no longer at stake. He could be wise in giving with his money because money didn't represent points. 
He could give up on formulaic religion, knowing that checking stuff off of a spiritual to-do list was a worthless pursuit. He would have confidence and the ability to laugh at himself. And he could love people without expecting anything in return. And he said it would be quite beautiful, really. See, when we understand that God's love for us can't be separated, can't be taken away, we're set free. We're set free to treat people with that same love, that same hope that God gives us. Free because it doesn't matter how they respond. It doesn't matter if they think better of us or worse of us because of it. It's just simply love. And when we grasp that promise that God's love for us can't go away, all of a sudden, we're free to live. We're free to also emulate that love. Think of this last week. I've had some unique opportunities, and I don't know why they always come all at once, but they've been great. A group of friends that, um, from different areas in my life who I've been able to hang out with the last couple of years. And some of these friends, I'm just growing to really love them. I love hanging out with them. A lot of them aren't Christians. In fact, none of these in this, the last week that I'm talking about are Christians. And yet, I had three separate conversations this week where people came to me and started asking about my faith. Started asking me why I believe what I believe. Started saying... And, and even this conversation about what's the difference of grace? How does grace affect you as a parent? One question was. And I thought, God, seriously? You're making it that easy? They're coming to me? And then the usual response is, that's because you're too dumb, Ryan, to you know, to know how to set this up. I'll do it for you. But there's this opportunity. Why? I really believe it stems from a couple of years of just loving and being with people without worrying about how they respond without needing to make them like me or even think, oh, you're a Christian or you're a pastor or, oh, man, really. Just saying, this is who I am. This is how God made me. And I really like you. We're having fun hanging out together. And through that, God's love, they see hope and they want to know about it. The promise of love for us and that won't go away changes everything. The next promise is this, is peace. How many of you would like peace promised in your life? You don't have to raise your hands, but that's something we all would love. We preached on it last week. Dale shared about peace. If you want to learn more, listen to the, the topic from last week. The reminder of one of the verses, Philippians chapter 4 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And get this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Notice it said it, you won't get understanding, but you can have peace. See, the peace of God is promised to us when we hand things over to him. I think of the time when my wife and I sold our house in Orange County. It was a time when the market was not as, it wasn't a seller's market. And we were selling our house and had a couple offers and we made a counter offer. And I remember that whole night staying up and wrestling with myself and thinking, oh, should we have offered that? Should I have counter offered more? Should, should we accept this offer? And just kind of stressed about the whole thing. And being reminded to present my request to God and let the peace of God Surpass understanding. So I'd say, God, I hand this over to you. It's yours. Give me peace. <sighs> Only if I would have offered, maybe I should have done more and done this. And, and I don't know if that was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, no, this is yours, God. I'm handing it over to you. Why, just help me fall asleep and I'll get over it. I wonder if maybe this other buyer is better than that one. Should I, you know, all night long and the whole time, God's going, every time I pray, God, I give it to you. 
give me peace. I almost picture him going like, okay, I'm going to... Uh, all right, never mind. Hold on. I'll wait. <laughs> How many times do we want peace from God, but we want to take the matters into our own hands? When the promise that God has is, no, no, let me do it. You can't find peace in yourself. If you say you trust me, you trust that I'm here, that means I'm here. Even if things don't go the way you think, can you trust that I'll bring peace? I'm still here. It's a promise given to us. And I hate that one because it's not easy. <laughs> the next one that goes right with it is a promise of comfort. Paul writes this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God of Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our afflictions. Then he goes on to say, because of that, we can comfort others in their afflictions. You know, sometimes we go through hard things in life. But one of the promises is that we have a God who can comfort us in those difficult times in life. That we can find hope, the belief that there's a positive outcome, even in those situations. That's where you find comfort. And he said, then as you learn to go through that, you become someone who comforts others in their afflictions. Some of you have been through some very difficult things in your lives. And somehow God walked you through it, maybe through the, a friend who's been through a similar situation. And then you've been given the opportunity to bring comfort to someone else. Christians are the ones who should have hope and be able to offer comfort. Uh, recently, my uh, brother is going through a divorce and, and his ex-wife just moved across the country with their kids. And I look at what they're going through and, and uh, moved them away from my brother and, his, and my parents who really were a big part of their life. And I think, I don't even know how to comfort them. I don't even know. I don't know what to do. Sometimes I look at my own family and I see I have uh, three great kids, sometimes drive me crazy, but for the most part, you know, they're, they're mostly good. When we let them out of their cage, they're great. And then, um, <laughs> I love my kids. I have a good wife. Sometimes I think, I don't know how I can extend comfort to my brother, to my parents. I don't understand it. I'm hoping and praying that somehow someone else can who's been through it. But I believe that because of Jesus Christ that there is hope in the situation. That they can find comfort. It's a promise given to us. And the final one is this. A promise of God's presence. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, I will ask the Father God and He will give you another helper. And that helper will be with you forever. That is the Holy Spirit of truth. Jesus also said in Matthew 28 verse 20, that I will be with you to the end of the age. God promises that his presence will be with us. We invite the worship team to start making their way up. And as they make their way up, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. I have this verse for you on the screen. And this is Matthew's description of when Jesus was born and he refers to the verse I shared earlier from Isaiah. And he says, Behold, the virgin will be with child and will bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel or Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You see, the promise of God that comes at this time that we're reminded of Christmas season is that God is with us. That when Simeon held that baby in his arms and looked down at this baby who he believed would be the Savior of the world, it was God with us, God in flesh. And when Jesus grew and he was crucified and rose again, he said, I'm not leaving you. 
My presence will go with you. I'm still here. See, we have the promise and we can believe that God is with us. He's near us. As a follower of Jesus, if you are one this morning, do you go through life? Do people see through you and through your life, do they believe that God's presence is with you? Can they see the life of Jesus Christ? Can they see the ways and the words of God through the way you live? Because we are the embodiment of the hope that comes because of Jesus. Our lives are the, the demonstration of this love, of this forgiveness, of this comfort, of peace, and of God's presence to the world. My prayer for us this morning is that we may be a church where hope is found through our lives, the way we live. That people will see that Jesus Christ at Christmas changed everything. And there's hope. There's a reason to believe there'll be a positive outcome through all circumstances. Join me as we pray. God, I thank you so much for Christmas. Thank you for the joy of the season. And I thank you, Lord, that there's hope in your promises. I thank you that you fulfill your promises. Your promises are true and they're good. God, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who maybe doesn't know you, is not a follower of you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their hearts this, this morning. They're here for a reason. They're hearing about your peace and your hope for a reason. And I pray, God, that that reason would be because you're calling them to be a part of your family, knowing that no one is outside of your love and your reach. And God, for those of us who follow you, would you give us courage to embody hope? Would you forgive us for the times when we do not show hope? When we do not have the joy that comes from knowing you as our Savior? When we forget that you are the God over all the earth? And your message is good. And we have that. So we thank you for this time now, Lord. And I pray as we end our time in worship, as a family of God, that, Lord, you would remind us of who you are. I give you this time now in your name. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing one final song, and then we have one little thing after the, that song. But what I want to do is I want to invite you to stand where you are. And uh, so you can stand where you are. <laughs> and we're going to sing this last song. It's kind of a song of celebration, of hope. Now, for some of you, if you are saying, Ryan, I want to know more, I want to pray with someone, when we're done here this morning, I want to invite you to to join me or someone else up here at the stage on the side. When we're done this morning, I'd love to pray with you, help you experience that hope. But before we get to that, let's just go ahead and let's celebrate with this last song. And, and then don't go anywhere. We have something right after that. So, uh, but let's just turn our, our attention and worship God who brings us hope and give us all things. So.